Hello and welcome to Celluloid Junkies. My name is Luke Kane and I am here with my co-host Damien Heath. Hello. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to play our interview with Queen Anne. Queen Anne, how are you? I'm often ill. No, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I uh, recently saw you in The Favourite. Is that something dramatic? Do you like it? Yeah, very much. I thought it was great and I thought you were great. Stop it. I, you mock me. No, no, not at all. Did you have a favourite scene? I like it when she puts her tongue inside me. Right, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting bit. Do you know my podcasting partner, Damien? I do not, obviously. Okay, well, you know he loved The Favourite and he thought you were excellent. Oh, you are a darling. <laughs> so, uh, Queen Anne, do you know what a podcast is? No. Well, it's like radio for the internet, except it isn't recorded live. Why are you here? Um, well, I'm, I'm one of the hosts. <laughs> You glow with loveliness. Oh, well, thank you. Look, so do you. Do not try to do that thing you do. What thing? You are too mean and uncaring some days. I'm sorry about that. So I imagine when a film comes out like this, there's a lot of press and interest in you. How many junkets have you done so far? Seventeen. That's a lot. Would you like to join me? No, not really. Do you go to the movies often? No, I do not, but we must fight for what we fight for. I see. Well, look, that's about all we have time for. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Everyone leaves me. That's terrible, but this probably isn't the right time to, to get into that. I am the Queen. Yeah, I haven't forgotten. I think I shall retire for the evening. Sounds like a good idea. Thanks again for your time. I don't care. Will you come and join us again? I will think on it for a while. Fair enough. In this episode, we are going to take you on a journey through our year in film. It's an opportunity for us to discuss our thoughts on the releases of 2018, which we don't get to do very often on our regular episodes. We're going to take you through our ups and downs, our zigzags, our pirouettes, our three-point turns and belly flops, our slammets to the left and chickas to the oh right. Oh, my God. Enough! Stop! Be gone! I command it! Leave! I don't want to hear it! Before we run through some of the year's trends, Damien, what were your general impressions of this year, uh, last year in film? I was a bit disappointed compared to 2017. I kept waiting for my Florida project, which was just the film that I fell in love with and embraced and which brought me joy. And it didn't come until a couple of days ago. Well, we're going to find out what that is later. We are. Unsurprisingly, it was another year in which superhero movies dominated. Avengers Infinity War topped the box office in 2018, with Black Panther coming in at number two, making it a very lucrative year for Disney. Even Venom, which reviewed poorly, was the sixth highest grossing film. Superheroes cooled their heels for a few weeks in June when Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom took the top spot, but that was a pretty lackluster venture. Other Marvel DC movies this year included Aquaman, Deadpool 2 and Ant-Man and the Wasp, all of which enjoyed their time in the sun. What did you think of this year's superhero output, Damien? Well, I saw Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and that I thought was um, pretty fun. Are you tired of superhero movies? I am in the sense that I'm sick of seeing them get released, but I'm not sick of seeing them because I never watch them. Why don't you watch them? Because I'm just not interested. I used to love comic books, used to love superhero stuff, but the superhero cinema as it is now, the majority of it, doesn't interest me at all. I think it's kind of worthless cinema. It's just big budget, as we've talked about before, big budget by committee cinema with little artistic value. Have you seen any of them? 
I've seen some of the early films based on Marvel characters, so the early Spider-Mans with Tobey Maguire and the Andrew Garfield one. I've seen the X-Men's from around that time, but the current, as they call it, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think I've seen the first Iron Man and Deadpool and maybe one or two others. And based on seeing those, you just thought, this is not for me. Look, I don't think a lot of those were terrible movies, but I would rather spend my time elsewhere. (laughs) Okay. There were some surprises last year. We had uh, John Krasinski's A Quiet Place. That was a sleeper hit, made a lot more money than I think Paramount had anticipated. We had Jason Statham's Meg. That was a ridiculous summer movie that people saw in droves. Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible Fallout was touted by the critics as the best in the series. And David Gordon Green's reboot of Halloween was an event horror movie, along with Hereditary, despite its D-Cinema score from audiences. What did you think of some of these films? We'll get to A Quiet Place a little bit later, which I loved. Hereditary I enjoyed. I thought that was a really interesting movie. I thought Tony Collette's performance was really quite remarkable. It lost its way a little bit for me. I wrote at length about some of these recent horror movies on our blog, which you can find on celluloidjunkies.com, and specifically the influence of low-budget filmmakers and companies like Jason Bloom and Bloomhouse, uh, Platinum Dunes, etc., I love horror. It's my favourite genre. I will always have time for those movies, even if they're bad. I like that movement, and generally I find something to like in the majority of those movies. Mission Impossible I don't think I've seen since the first one, um, which I know that you will find uh, a little upsetting because you say that they're pretty good movies. Some of them, but certainly I thought Fallout was great. I loved it. What about Halloween? Yeah, I thought Halloween was okay. It's nice to have new entries in the Halloween series to watch at some point in the future. I like seeing killers like Michael Myers and Jason and Freddy. Look, you can put them in anything and I will watch them. I think it was exciting for us to have Michael Myers in a big event movie this year. Yeah. Because, you know, the last few sequels kind of went straight to video and then Rob Zombie's films came out, but they didn't really feel like the Michael Myers we knew. That's right. I think H2O was a pretty big reboot at the end of the 90s, partly because that brought back... Jamie Lee Curtis as well, uh, and I am in love with the Rob Zombie movies. He's one of my favourite horror filmmakers, in fact. Uh, I didn't think as much of this film, but uh, it was still enjoyable, and I've had some really good scenes, and I loved that they used, for instance, the original font from Halloween, and that mm-hmm. they used the, the way that they used the music and sound, especially, I thought was really, really good in this movie. Oh, John Carpenter's score was great. Uh, my problem with the new Halloween was the way that they coloured the Laurie Strode character. Yeah. I thought how they dealt with the trauma and fear that she'd been through was a little silly. And I actually wrote a review about it on Letterboxd, detailing what I, the problems I had with the film, with her character specifically. Uh, but yeah, I still had a lot of fun that night. And I've, I've watched the film again. I think it, it holds up as a, as a film that you can rewatch. It's a decent entry into the series, in a series that had been dead for a while. It is a decent entry into the series. Certainly it's better than a lot of the ones that are in the middle. Oh, four and five. I mean, it's got it's so much better than those. Yeah. I also like that it kind of ignored everything but the first one, although I think they could have they could have acknowledged the second one. Yeah, and uh, but typically they do that, don't they? They go, okay, well, what's the easiest way to find an audience? People who know the original film aren't necessarily going to know the sequel to it. Yeah. So they go, okay, well, we'll just make a sequel to the original film. I think people that love, really love horror and really love Halloween generally have really good feeling about that second movie. Yeah, and I agree with you, but the audience that this one found, and it was uh, commercially successful, 
the the recent remake, the majority of that audience may not be familiar with Halloween 2. They might have just been looking for a yeah. nice night at the movies. The people that went and saw Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they were going to see something different by seeing Halloween. <laughs> um, okay, so there were two musical dramas this year that surprised the industry with their reach. The first was Bradley Cooper's A Star Is Born. I think there was a lot of derision, a lot of people with their knives out for that, but it ended up being embraced by critics and loved by audiences. The second was Bohemian Rhapsody, um, the Queen biopic, which initially everyone thought, oh, that's an Oscar movie. Then it came out and the critics went, eh, no, it isn't. But audiences absolutely loved it. It became the seventh highest grossing film of the year, which is extraordinary. And as time has gone on since switching to 2019, it has actually gained steam as far as yeah. awards are concerned. We'll talk about A Star is Born later. You haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, have you? No. No, so I saw it. I actually thought it was um, pretty good. I mean, look, definitely not great. Definitely quite a thin story in terms of, you know, getting to something really deep and and interesting and in terms of insight into character. But, uh, you know, as a film with a great performance that kind of swings along in a good humour, it's perfectly serviceable way to spend 90 minutes to two hours. And it's a, it's a you know, a nice celebration of the uh, the band's music. I think maybe because I don't particularly know Queen very well. It was all new to me. And, you know, I heard a lot of songs in there that I thought, oh, I do like that song, but I just haven't thought about it in 10 years. You can see that it's kind of become culturally relevant that movie though because I walked into JB Hi-Fi the other day and the Blu-ray had been released but you know of course they were playing Queen's greatest hits and that's happened several times that the you know since the release of that movie that it's um they're in some of the best-selling lists it's an audience favorite for Mm. sure and you're right again like you know the critics kind of went no but the audiences then went yes and now look it's got an Oscar nomination for best picture and uh, and it won the Golden Globe that's yeah that's pretty pretty interesting Mm. that that happened The only other thing I'll say about this year in terms of trends is that Crazy Rich Asians came out, made an obscene amount of money and was heralded heralded as a watershed moment in on-screen representation next to Black Panther. Similarly, Love, Simon moved the big screen teen comedy into uncharted territory by exploring a young man's coming out journey. Halloween had the biggest opening with a female lead over the age of 55, which is a strangely specific achievement, but there you are. Ocean's 8 made a bucket load of money with an all-female cast, so we definitely saw some positive reflections of the social shifts happening in our culture right now. I agree with you. Yes, that is a very specific category as well. That's the kind of thing, you know, when you go to Box Office Mojo and it has those charts of how films compare to each other and they're just some of the most random categories. Yeah. It's like, this is the highest grossing film of a Sudanese woman holding a blanket. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> we had some flops. Uh, Mortal Engines was a disaster for Universal Pictures. It was made for $100 million. It barely grossed 80 other flops this year included uh, last year included Robin Hood and the Nutcracker and the Fourth Realms. With a title like that, were they surprised that it didn't do a lot of money? You know, I, I cannot visually bring to mind any of those movies at the moment. Well, yeah, there you are. They were really big movies that just didn't do anything, and um, a few studios took some hits from those. Can I just talk about one of my favourite film movements of the year? Mm. And that was that the Academy ratio has made such a comeback. The Witch used it to such great effect a few years ago, a couple of years ago. And last year, it seemed like everybody went, well, hey, this is how I want my film to look. The Academy ratio? Yeah, so the 4-3 ratio. Okay, say that. Or 1.661. No one knows what Academy ratio is. So First Reformed by Paul Schrader, The Nightingale by Jennifer Kent, Roma by Alfonso Cuaron... And all of them looked so beautiful. And I don't necessarily love that they were all shot 4-3, 
but I do love that filmmakers are now willing to issue that standard 1.85 to 1 if they want to. Films were always 4.3 until about the 50s when televisions found their way into homes and widescreen and cinemascope became the spectacle that lured audiences back to the cinema. Then in the last 15 years, we've seen mass-produced widescreen televisions and they make it really easy to watch any film in the comfort of your living room on a so-called big screen. So since it's no longer about the way that you consume the art form, anything goes. This in turn allows the freedom of shooting a film in 4.3 because no matter where you watch it, you're going to have a pretty good visual experience. And I think that the critical success and sometimes the commercial success of all of those films has blown production choices wide open. And I think we'll start to see a lot more unconventional aspect ratios and maybe this will translate into the other scientific and technical fields of filmmaking as well. And I really, I really appreciate that a director can go, well, you know what, it's going to look great wherever I do it, so this is how I'm going to, this is how I want to shoot it. And they can aid that story in that way and we haven't had that for a long time it's been pretty standard for about the last 60 years yeah i think it's great too you know sometimes i'm at home and i think i don't feel like watching a rectangle i feel like watching a square get fucked (laughs) (laughs) every year damien and i log everything that we watch or when we remember i remember a lot more than damien we log everything that we watch onto a a website called letterboxd and uh, at the end of the year, we get this um, statistical report that tells us all kinds of data about our film-watching habits. So we're now going to reveal some of our statistics to you. I think you do this to feel good about yourself, because you watch a lot more movies than I do. Well, that's right, yeah. It's just I can lord it over you every year. I mean, I play a lot more Dead by Daylight or Deadly <laughs> Death Trap than you. Whatever it's called. What is that game called that you love? Dead by Daylight. Okay, well, I call it Deathly Death Trap. You call it whatever comes to mind at the moment that you say it. Hey, at least I know that it's got something to do with death. Yeah. So I do listen to you. Yeah. Okay, Damien, how many films watched in 2018? Okay, 114. Okay, I had 343. Mine equates to 2.2 per week. So mine's 6.6. You have a lot of time on your hands. So I've watched exactly three times more than you. Yeah. Hmm. So you've watched three times more than me plus one. (laughs) you really got to get to work. My most watched film was Fritz Lang's M, and I watched it three times, and we did an episode on that one. But I saw it for the first time at the start of January in 2018. I was absolutely blown away by it. I made you watch it, uh, and then we did a podcast episode on about it, and a podcast episode on about it. You know what I mean? It was just one of those films that's so easy to watch. It's so I find it so accessible because it's so brilliant. It's such a vision. You're talking about A Quiet Place? M. Oh, M, yeah. Oh, it was great. This will come as no surprise to some of our more regular listeners. My most watched film this year was Silent Night, Deadly Night. Okay. Three times. Also, A Quiet Place. I watched that three times. Okay. Hmm. Okay, most watched stars, male and female. Um, no, I don't have a male and female. I have two males. Okay. One is Tracy Letts, who was in The Post and Lady Bird and Christine. So good. And the other is uh, Wilford Brimley, who is recently deceased. Uh, He was in China Syndrome, which we did an episode on, but also Cocoon and Cocoon 2 The Return, (laughs) (laughs) which I randomly found on Foxtel and decided. Actually, you know what? I randomly found Cocoon, and I enjoyed that experience so much. It's kind of a nostalgic 80s experience that I purchased the the digital rental of Cocoon 2. The Return, to be able to watch that. That was not worth it, that one. You watch so few films a year, and then when you finally do, you put in Cocoon. And Cocoon too. don't forget that, Luke. Okay, well, why don't you guess who my most watched female star was? 
Okay, it's going to be one of Jane Fonda, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Barbara Streisand. It'll be one of them. Nicole Kidman. Oh, okay. You so should have put her in the list. I watched nine Nicole Kidman movies. I'm sorry it wasn't 19. And my most watched male actor, weirdly, was Tom Cruise with Seven. I do love Tom Cruise, but I was just surprised I saw that many of him. And I was surprised that they were the two. Most watched directors. I had two directors that I watched four times. But each director, I only watched two different films. One of them was Fritz Lang with M. The other film I watched was The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. And the other, (laughs) interestingly, is Johannes Roberts, who did 47 Metres Down, which I watched twice, and The Strangers Pray at Night, which I watched twice. Well, I watched 10 Brian De Palma films. That was sort of conscious. I made an effort um, last year. I I just wanted to revisit a lot of his films and see a lot I hadn't seen. So I watched um, Carlito's Way for the first time, Unforgiven. And then my second most watched director is Steven Spielberg. I watched six of his films. Mm. You know I love my crappy horror movies, as we were talking about. My most watched film professional was actually Jason Bloom as producer. And I watched eight of his movies, which were Ouija, Origin of Evil, Get Out, The Darkness, Happy Death Day, Truth or Dare, The First Purge, Halloween, and Unfriended Dark Web. And some of those were really bad. A few of them were enjoyable. And you'll also enjoy that Letterboxd tells me that one of my most highly... Most my, Haley, my most highly rated films you missed was Taylor Swift's Reputation Tour. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. Now what we're going to do is we're going to let people know what we thought the best performances of the year were before we go into our top five. Yeah. So best actress. This is a much stronger category than actor for me, and it usually is. There are a couple of new stars who were especially good. I think Aisling, Aisling Franciosi in The Nightingale was one of the best performances I've seen from a newcomer in years. And I also really loved Yolizia Aparicio in Roma, and I'm very glad that she got an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. As far as established stars go, I thought Tony Collette was excellent in Hereditary, and Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone in The Favourite were fantastic. I think they elevated one another. My favourite performance of the year was by Olivia Coleman as Queen Anne in that same movie. I think she did amazing work making this pathetic character sympathetic. How dare you! For me, it was the best comedic performance of the year and the best dramatic one as well. She was horrible and charming, manipulative and easily manipulated, full of love but emotionally empty at the same time. It was not an easy character to pull off. She was truly dichotomous and at times completely unlikable, but I loved her and I loved Coleman for provoking that response. As you say, really strong year for actresses. And I agree with everyone that you said. The only one that I would add is Glenn Close in The Wife, which I know you haven't seen yet, but she's my favourite for the Oscar. Just got the edge over Olivia Coleman, and I think a lot of that has to do with her history. You know, Glenn Close has been nominated seven or eight times, hasn't won. I've always loved her. So when you say your favourite, you think she's the favourite to win or you think she you would like to see her win? I would like to see her win. Yeah. But um, look, my Best Actress and Best Actor both came from the same movie this year, which has been totally ignored by everybody, and that is Ben is Back. I would give it to Julia Roberts. For me, it was my favourite performance by a female this year. Mm. Best Actor? This was a bit more difficult. There were some strong performances by established actors, but nothing completely blew me away. I thought Ethan Hawke in First Reformed would probably be my favourite. I also really liked Viggo Mortensen in Green Book and Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born and Bakali Ganumbar in The Nightingale as well. He was the best newcomer that I saw. Mm, He was the tracker that helps her. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. so good. My favourite performance by an actor was Lucas Hedges in Ben Is Back. Uh, with a couple of runner-ups, uh, Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born. I think he's great in that film. And Whackin' Phoenix in You Were Never Really Here. Mm. I'm looking for my son. I can tell there's something wrong. You need to come home. Not without Ben. 
I just need you to please find my son. The things that I've done to myself and others. We can't save them, but you'll hate yourself if you don't try. Just tell me, son, where you want me to bury you. I'm not going to die. Anyways, here I am, still here. Should we do our top five? Yeah. Hit me with your number five. Uh, Number five for me is A Quiet Place. The fact that this movie has been made by a first-time director, a husband and wife cast, I thought it was a really unique story. It was told uh, visually very interestingly. There were some fantastic scenes in there. I really responded positively to A Quiet Place. I thought it was the best horror film of the year. I really liked it. It's interesting that you said it's it's a unique story. I would say more that it, the way it was told was unique. Well, yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. And also I think the sound, the use of sound, which is the obvious thing to say about it, but that was what was truly remarkable about it. Mm. The uh, effect it had on audiences that people felt they couldn't chew their popcorn yeah. <laughs> or slurp their drinks because we were made so self-conscious by sound. Um, the characters' anxieties became the audience's anxieties watching the film. I remember. It was like watching a really tense, silent movie. Yeah, so extraordinary. I loved it too. And I thought that, uh, you know, I was turned around on Emily Blunt. I know that my top, my number five is your number one. Yorgos Lanthimos is the favourite, which is about two ambitious ladies-in-waiting who are vying for the affections of the ailing Queen Anne. It's his seventh film. It's his most widely embraced. His previous two were more divisive, although I thought they were both excellent. It still has his idiosyncratic style, his subversive kind of edge. It's vicious. It's uncomfortable. The dialogue is surprisingly crass. All three central performances, as you've said, are amazing, but Olivia Colman is the, the obvious standout. Production design and camera work are just exquisite. He really does make the most of the period, and the film is so sumptuous and elegant. You only have to put it next to this year's Mary Queen of Scots, which is comparatively flat and pedestrian by comparison. I mean, they're chalk and cheese. I love period dramas. This one sits next to me, uh, sits next to Amadeus, Elizabeth and Dangerous Liaisons as one of the best ever made. Uh, Number four for me was Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, uh, which I thought was um, a difficult film at times to get through. But at the same time, it was the um, it was visually it's one of the most beautiful films of the year. Uh, I love the stylistic choices that he made, uh, filming in black and white. His um, kind of panning shots of the along the street, you know, even his still shots that he uses at the the still shot that he uses at the start of the film with the water washing over and the end of the film with the plane flying over as she ascends the stairs. The performances in there I thought were amazing. It was an honest film. This is the kind of film that you know it's a it's a Mexican film. It's told in the Spanish language. Well, the Mexican language, I think they're the same, aren't they? You know, it's just a, a really quite remarkable vision from someone who had moved into the Hollywood system with great success as well. Um, you know, he's already won Best Director uh, at the Academy Awards until I saw The Favourite. This was my choice for Best Director at the Academy Awards this year as well. The scene in Roma on the beach, I think, is particularly remarkable mm-hmm. you know I loved the idea that this film was released on Netflix as well and that it got a cinema release in the few weeks before that and and then was released on Netflix so it was able to find a wide audience yes and was subtitled but a lot of people saw it mm. I liked it I didn't like it as much as you but I thought it was very good I thought it visually it was stunning 
I had some problems with a, a couple of the coincidences in the writing that I, I didn't buy. The most glaring one is when the father of her child turns up in the department store during a siege, which is filled with thousands of people on the street. He's the one that ends up there holding the gun at her. For me, that's very sloppy and silly. Didn't need it as well. But, I mean, you're right, the scene by the beach, so beautifully shot in that one shot. It's frightening, and yet there's a romance to it and an energy to it. It's beautiful. What's your number four? A Star is Born, uh, which is directed by Bradley Cooper. Everybody knows about this movie. I went in with super low expectations, My sister and a couple of my friends had seen it. They weren't overly excited about it. And I went and saw it in the middle of the day with with my partner. And I was just bowled over by it. I can't remember the last time I saw a screen romance as enveloping as this one was. I loved how intimate it was, how quiet it was. I think it irons out a lot of the missteps of the Streisand Christopherson version, and I think it contemporizes the story in a way that's quite logical. Lady Gaga gives a committed performance, but Bradley Cooper is on another level good. His portrait of a man doomed by <laughs> his addiction and his proclivities is really heartbreaking. The live performances capture like that visceral euphoria you feel when you see a really great stage show and it made me cry i think it's been made with a great deal of care and humanity the scenes between sam elliott and bradley cooper are just beautiful was made for 40 million it grossed half a billion so it was a big hit with audiences and you know what not because it was packed with cgi and full of action and hype but because it was an actual human story told in a really beautiful way and that almost doesn't happen anymore yeah i only recently watched a Star is Born a few nights ago. I definitely didn't think as much of it as you did. I thought there were some serious problems with it. I thought that the 1970s version is still my favourite, even though that is a little bit hokey. But I love, you know, Streisand and Christopherson in that movie. I thought there was some really good things in this movie. I gave it three and a half stars ultimately. So, you know, it was an enjoyable experience. I thought some of the music was pretty good. But instead of, you know, the big scene that everybody loves, I loved the preceding scene where Lady Gaga brought in that composition that she'd written. The changes that it made from the 70s one, which is the closest comparison that it has, depleted a little bit from the movie for me. I thought Bradley Cooper's performance was excellent, though. What's your number three? My number three is First Reformed, which is the Paul Schrader movie. That's another film, so that's the second one in a row, and actually the next one is also shot in the 4-3 Academy ratio. But it, it looked beautiful. It was um, I heard a um, that it was originally to be shot in black and white, and uh, I'm glad that it wasn't. I like the kind of desaturated colours that it uses. love the conversations. I love the framing of every shot. I really loved everything about that movie. I, I was kind of shocked at certain scenes. Yeah, I think it's a great film. I mean, we'll probably talk about that in a minute, won't we? We will. Yeah. My number three was You Were Never Really Here, which is directed by Lynn Ramsey, and it's about a suicidal hitman who specialises in rescuing underage girls from human traffickers. Look, you know, we've spoken about We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was Lynn Ramsey's previous film, and I think we both agree that she's a genius. I haven't watched You Were Never Really Here yet. But you can tell she's a genius from Mm. When You Talk About Kevin, or at least an extremely sophisticated adult filmmaker. She employs similar techniques in You Were Never Really Here, particularly how she visually arranges memory and trusts her actors to impart information non-verbally. This is a masterclass in technique. Everything in this film, from the editing to the sound design to the images to the acting to the writing, is just okay this is this is 
what a really intelligent filmmaker is capable of doing with this craft. It's a troubling look at child abuse, maybe the most troubling, not because it's graphic, but because of its psychological impact. And Wacken Phoenix is magnetic. It is sensuous cinema. The whole thing is like you make love for 90 minutes with this movie. I mean, everything about it is just elegant and beautiful. But elegant isn't even the right word because it's stronger than that. I really want you to see it, Damien. I really, really want you to see it. Probably very few people have seen it. Find it and do it on a day when it's quiet and when you've got patience to to really be immersed in something. Okay. Mm. Number two. I think we both have the same film at number two, which is Jennifer Kent's follow-up to The Babadook, uh, The Nightingale. Yes. Mm. We saw this at the Adelaide Film Festival, so it was the Adelaide premiere, if not the Australian premiere. It's the Australian. It? Yeah, and uh, Jennifer Kent gave a speech before the film. The stars of the movie were both in attendance, and I know that Dev Patel was there doing Hotel Mumbai at the time as well. He was sitting in the row in front of us yeah. <laughs> during that screening. And I got a st- standing ovation. I wrote a, an article about um, The Nightingale and put it on our blog, so you can see that on celluloidjunkies.com as well. But it was just a really important film to be told I think it was so honest it was um, kind of damning just everything about it was amazing There's Jennifer Clint, she's an amazing director she's got such a future she had so many offers from Hollywood to leave Australia and make a Hollywood film after the Babadook and she stayed here and she made a film about uh, white people and Aboriginal people set in the 1700s and I find that amazing. It really is. A lot of people won't have seen this film. It isn't uh, readily available at the moment. I think it's just been entered into the Sundance Film Festival. I know a distributor's picked it up, but it hasn't come out on screens yet or I don't know exactly how, how what its future is. It's uh, about a young Irish convict living in a penal colony in 1825 in Tasmania who reluctantly enlists the help of an Aboriginal tracker to hunt down the British officer who has wronged her and her family. We did see it um, for its Australian premiere, and as you say, the director was in attendance, and I think that certainly added to um, the overall experience of watching the movie. Man, it is a tough watch. Mm. It is so unflinching. There are a couple of scenes where the brutality teeters on the unbearable, but it's also exquisitely beautiful in places. It is the most honest, unflinching account of what white settlers did to Aborigines in our country ever committed to film, no question. It has an epic feel about it. It's Australia's Schindler's List, or 12 Years a Slave. It's a a story of human history, but told from a very personal and specific perspective. You're right, the performances are astonishing. They're almost otherworldly. It's a far more ambitious film than The Babadook, uh, and some people are going to be put off by the violence. But I admired Kent's courage um, that she went the whole nine yards, uh, even though that I, I'm not sure I'll ever be able to sit through it again. Mm. I can't imagine um, I can't imagine agreeing to sit through it again. I'd need to have sort of my cast iron skin on. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Number one? Uh, well, number one for me is The Favourite, as you've already spoiled for everybody. I only saw this a couple of nights ago, a few nights ago, and I fell in love with it the moment it started. The moment it started. And there's there's the music and the, the visual, and it just connected with me in such a way that as, as I was watching this movie, I wanted to be watching it again and again and again. I mean, that's not a common experience for people to have. So you know something special when that does happen, that you just 
oh, you want to be reliving this a lot. Uh, it was the best directed film of the year. Killing of a Sacred Deer, it was either in my top five or it was an on, a special mention last year. It was in your top five. And, okay, so this is it blows it out of the water for me. It's far more accessible. I think it's a more complete vision. There's a lot of the same kind of things, the jarring music, the beats... A lot of the remarkable visuals are carried over. That's obviously uh, Lanthimos as a director. Some of those ultra-wide-angle shots, he even uses a fisheye lens, a fisheye lens in a period film. Mm. I mean, that's uh, that's different. Costume design, the set design was amazing. Yeah. I thought that the performances were second to none. Olivia Coleman, as I've already said, was my favourite performance of the year. I loved the whole thing. I... I Hope it wins Best Picture. I hope he wins Best Director. I hope Coleman wins Best Actress, even though I won't be sad if Glenn Close does. I hope one of them wins Best Supporting Actress. I just, I loved it. I loved it. This was my Florida project. Yeah, it's a great movie. What's interesting is that uh, Lanthimos's dialogue is almost, in all of his films, deliberately not stilted but almost uh you know you're very conscious of the fact that oh this isn't how people talk they don't talk this way but what that does in a lanthimos film is it draws attention to the fact that words are a construct that we use to express ourselves and so it creates this this dissonance between what is being said and who is saying it we can feel the 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 kind of gap (laughs) that separates what someone actually thinks and feels versus what's coming out of their mouths. The period setting, it's electrifying using that technique in a period setting because, you know, dialogue was or language back then was far more formal and less colloquial use and there was more civility to it. Lanthimos' style of writing is just so well suited to this sort of film and I never would have guessed it, but sitting through The Favourite, you're like, oh, yes, this this is such a wonderful marriage. Yeah. The, this this setting and, and, you know, this period setting with Lanthimos' style as a filmmaker. Yeah. And, wow, the three leads are so great. I love Rachel Weisz. I saw her in um, Disobedience recently, and I liked that a lot too. Oh, my number one is First Reformed, which um, we've already spoken about. It's about a priest of a small parish on the outskirts of New York whose relationship with a young married couple causes him to question his faith and purpose in life. We are putting together an episode on this film, which we're going to release hopefully shortly. We're just waiting on a uh, interview subject to be able to make time for us. Very busy. So we are going to release that soon. The film's a knockout. It's career best work from Schrader and Hawke. Beautifully photographed, full of evocative themes and imagery. Special mentions? Uh, I have a few. They probably... I would have been upset if I'd needed to include them in my top five. Right. The first special mention is If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, which is the new film by Barry Jenkins, who'd made Moonlight. You know, it's a nice movie. I was disappointed. I thought it was pretty schmaltzy. Uh, Hereditary is one of them. It's one of mine. Loved it. Suspiria is the other one. Oh, yeah, that was good. That was flawed, but it was good. Yeah, definitely flawed. I have a few more than you. I loved Ben is Back. It's total melodrama TV movie, but who cares? It was so powerfully done, so well written. My favourite performances of the year are in the film. I sobbed like a sobbing sob. You sobbed like Luke. Sobbing SOB. Luke Kane watching a movie. We've talked about A Quiet Place. I loved Mission Impossible Fallout. That was just a thrilling action film. Several breathtaking sequences. The Wife, which is what Glenn Close is being, um, has been nominated for. That is a tense, tense movie. Like nerve shredding. Lots of fun. Lizzie, which was um, a movie that no one really saw but that was really well done two great performances Leave No Trace was another good film that we saw this year 
Searching. Uh, that's sort of a, a kind of over-the-top movie, but it's kind of ingenious as well and really, really well done. Uh, Suspiria, which you've mentioned. And then the other one I just saw the other night, Destroyer, which is a very grim crime drama, but more of a character study with Nicole Kidman dominating as a detective who must atone for some really bad choices she made years ago. Just quickly on If Beale Street Could Talk, I thought that I think Regina King is pretty much a lock for Best Supporting Actress. And I didn't gel really with that performance compared to a lot of other performances this year. No, I mean, I thought she was good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wonder how... We'll have to have a look and see how strong that category is this year. Yeah, well, it's got the favourite Oh, well, I'd give it to either one of them over her. But, Mm. oh, well, maybe maybe she's sort of... They're just sort of... She's representing the film. Mm. Because the film was largely ignored, which I think it should have been. Yeah. The score... I was a little disappointed... I was hoping for more. But the score is amazing. I mean, Moonlight was so much better. Mm, Moonlight was better, yeah. The score is my favourite score of the year. Mm. If Beale Street could talk. Stunning. Yeah. Uh, And the the, the, the photography. And when the movie isn't talking, it's quite lovely. It's when when the dialogue comes in that you're like, oh, what is this? The dialogue is really dopey. I did really like the way he made it. He he kind of made it feel like a documentary uh, drama uh, and uh, of an experience that I've never had. Um, and I thought that was really interesting to watch a film that was made that way. Yeah, I mean, I loved I loved the two leads in it. Yeah. Loved their faces. I loved their performances, but I just didn't think that it was very well written, which is very disappointing. For me, I, I, I'm a bit of a, a snob with writing, and, and I, I know when I, something's been written that I'm not vibing with, and I just could tell, and it got worse and worse. You're meant to introduce that by saying, as a writer... The first clue I got was the when the family had their confrontation at the beginning, oh, and I thought, "Wow, this is this is like early '90s midday movie." It felt very stage play at parts. Oh, it did. Let's give away our junkie awards. Okay. Okay. Favorite screen star for the year. Do you have to talk about your least favorite screen star to talk about your favorite, or are they completely no. separate? Let's start with least favorite. Can okay. we? My least favorite. I'm going to give it to the person I gave favorite film star last year, which was Timothy. Chalamet. Oh. And I'm giving it to him because the backlash against Woody Allen. And specifically the, you know, they say that uh, I resent having worked with Woody Allen because he is now accused of a crime that he was accused of 30 years ago. uh, And therefore I'm donating my salary to uh, charity from the movie that I worked with. And it is such a jaded response from somebody who has money and it is such a populist kind of response. Not getting too deeply into the charges against Woody Allen, but obviously he was found not guilty of any of these charges when an investigation was done at the time. There seemed to be a lot of things at that time that would point to this being a manipulation from Mia Farrow. Unfortunately, the human cancer Ronan Farrow has started finding a voice And it's led to good. He broke the Harvey Weinstein story. But now he's on a personal crusade to kind of do this to his uh, father to prove that he was guilty of sexual assault, which is something that if you say it, it doesn't mean it's true. There's one person who said something about Woody Allen. It's been proven false in an investigation. Two investigations. Again, two investigations. And now, unfortunately, because... Ronan Farrow's found a voice in this culture that we've got going where 
somebody is accused of something and they're guilty, stars like Timothy Chalamet, who have some kind of clout, who people listen to, who they come out and they say, I'm going to donate my earnings to charity because I should never have worked with Woody Allen. I mean, that is a further damnation of a person who has given more to cinema than you will ever give, ever. It makes me angry that somebody like that has the right to say this about somebody who has been found not guilty and who has made this his life, who has given you an opportunity that you should be grateful for and to turn around and throw that back in his face when you'll be forgotten in five years. And also for it to be called brave. Yes. It's cowardice. I mean, going with the popular wave is not brave. Mm. Breaking against that wave is brave. Someone like Alec Baldwin is brave, who's come Mm. out and said, no, this is crap. This is bullshit. We are not the judge and jury of this man. Mm. And he has been found innocent twice by a proper investigation. And actually, you might as well answer it. That's my favourite. Really? Alec Baldwin? Yeah, because of that. Oh, wow, that's great. Because there has to be a voice fighting back against this. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Matt Damon came out on the TV show and said there are degrees of... Sexual harassment. Sexual harassment. And he was vilified for that. Yeah. I mean, come on. When, of course, there are degrees. How dare you equate a bum slap with a stranger rape in a park? Come on. People, we are going fucking crazy here. Just think about things for a little while. Well, my favourite screen star is much less involved than yours, much less deep. My favourite is Lucas Hedges because he was in Boy Erased, which wasn't a fantastic movie, but he was great in it. And Ben is back. He is my absolute crush at the moment, and not because he's, you know, gorgeous, uh, but he is in in the sense of how honest he is on screen and how heartbreaking he is in, on screen. And there are moments in boy, both Boy Race and certainly Ben is Back where I just think, wow, how does an actor that young have so much understanding of human nature and how is he able to access those emotions like that? I just think he's beautiful. My least favourite star is uh, Kevin Hart. By the way, I didn't even know who Kevin Hart was 12 months ago. Uh, but turns out he's a bad comedian who's trying to break into films. <laughs> um, I'll tell you my Kevin Hart story, shall I? He got uh, the gig of being the Oscar host. And then, of course, hours later, all of the you know little Twitter, Facebook trolls brought up tweets that he had written years and years and years ago, which were homophobic. And they weren't like, you know, a little bit homophobic what you're not saying makes you homophobic like Denzel Washington. No, these were full-on, like, homophobic tweets. Like, I will bash my kid if he says he's gay or he plays with Barbie dolls. And then Kevin Hart came out and said, I'm not going to apologise. I already have apologised. People change. If you can't accept that people change, that's your issue, not mine. But I ain't going to say I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. I'd never heard of Kevin Hart. But then I'd heard, then I heard of him when he got announced for the Oscars. Then I heard that, you know, his tweets that he'd made. And then I heard that he wasn't going to apologise because he already had apologised. That was my experience with this person. And I just thought to myself, okay, well, for the people that may have missed your I'm sorry back when you were just, you know, a fart in the wind, why don't you just apologise again? Be done with it. Because this is truly awful. What you have said, truly fucking awful. For me, the accusation is new. For me, the tweets are new. And I'm a gay man here, 
and you want me to pay money to go see your movies. So why don't you just clarify that you don't have some sort of fundamentally prejudiced view of my life and my choices? Then maybe I can move on and not hate you. I thought you said your choice was not going to be as dramatic as mine, your answer. Yeah, it turns out it kind of is. I barely knew Kevin Hart. I'd seen him in some movies and they were all bad and he was not memorable to me at all. I have nothing against Kevin Hart as a person. I don't care enough to think about it, right? I do have a problem with Kevin Hart hosting the Oscars because I watch the Oscars and I don't want to watch Kevin Hart. Put fucking Whoopi Goldberg back. I love her. Yeah, I loved Whoopi. Put put anyone but him. I mean, in and fact... I'll say the greatest, uh, my least favourite thing that came out of all of this was that Ellen backed him up. Yeah, I know. Frickin' Ellen. And I love Ellen. I've loved Ellen my entire life from the moment I was, like, 12 years old and her sitcom started on TV. I've loved Ellen. Like, deeply loved Ellen. And what was annoying about that was not that she had him on the show, but that she didn't even ask him one tough question about those tweets. Yeah. All she did was sit there and talk about how wonderful he was and how she knew that he wasn't uh, prejudiced and that she'd called up the Oscars begging for him to have his job back. So, Ellen, I know you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I still love you, but shame on you. That's it feels true. like, you know, somebody's ascended to power and they're just looking out for their friends. Yeah, yeah. It's like Idi Amin all over again. <laughs> I just have to say this, um, because uh, we talked uh, right when this happened. Mm-hmm. You called me right when it happened mm-hmm. and said, I'm going to talk to you about it. I'm not going to say anything till I'm on your show. So, uh, And then we talked, uh, uh, because I called you. His movie is so amazing. The Upside is so incredible. He's so incredible. I've seen it twice. It's so Anyway, so I called him to tell him how great his movie was. Then we talked a, a little bit more. So I... I called the Academy today because mm-hmm. I, I really want you to host the Oscars. I think that I was so excited when I heard they, that they asked you. I thought it was an amazing thing. I knew how important it was and how it was a dream. So I called them. I said, Kevin's on. I have no idea if he wants to come back and host, but what are your thoughts? And they were like, oh, my God, we, we want him to host. We feel like that maybe we, he misunderstood or it was handled wrong or maybe we said the wrong thing, but we want him to host. What, whatever we can do, we would be thrilled. And he should host. Yeah. Uh, your best movie moment. This is, a, this is where we talk about the best moment we had when we were watching a movie and we were kind of transcended by it. You'll like this. I'm going to go with the Are You Washed by the Blood of the Lamb final scene in First Reformed. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was poetic. It was good that it was so ambiguous. I loved that it was preceded by a series of visuals that were so difficult to watch. It was preceded by a film that was difficult to kind of come to grips with. And it um, uh, it was a final scene that you could come away from this movie with so many different readings and all of them would be personal. I loved the hymn in there as well. I loved the hymn and the music and the scenery and the camera work and just everything. Uh, that was my, that would be my favourite movie moment of the year. Uh, I loved the performance of Shallow and A Star Is Born. I know it's like really silly and like oh you know she starts off all meek and mild, but then she gets into it and their relationship. But who cares? Sometimes movies are silly. Sometimes the cliches work because they are cliches. And I just thought it was beautiful. I absolutely loved it. And I remember just it being so stirring in a cinema watching that. And maybe it was partly because I was there with. Her is, and you know, it was a romantic movie, and I was sitting there with um, a boy that I had romantic feelings for, and you know, it just was lovely. You say had 
romantic feeling. You do have, still have, <laughs> hopefully will always have. Yeah, look, I, I liked that scene. I, I liked the previous scene where she introduced the, the, the song first in the, the car park. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I liked that a little bit more. That actually sent shivers down my spine. And when he whispers to her, I think you might be a songwriter, mm. but I won't tell anyone. But then I'm bad at keeping secrets. And then it just kept going on and on. <laughs> so anyway, Luke, uh, let me ask you the next question, okay? Mm-hmm. So tell me something, boy. <laughs> Aren't you tired of trying to fill that void? What was your worst film of 2018? It it was Crazy Rich Asians, which I thought was fucking horrible. I haven't seen it, but judging by what you said, and also the trailer really turned me off, and so I had no intention of ever seeing it. Uh, But judging by what you said, and uh, people can find your review on Letterboxd, which I think summarises it quite perfectly, it It turned me off. Sex and the City 2 came out, and everyone lamblasted that as a racist, materialistic, consumerist piece of dribble. And Crazy Rich Asians is all of that, but it's got Asian actors in it, so it was lauded. It said nothing about Asian culture or Asian life or the Asian people. Do you... I think that this is a case of uh, baby steps in that a huge number of people who are Asian have really embraced that this film was released. You're probably right. It probably is a a good step forward just generally, but I cannot overlook bad filmmaking and bad writing for that reason. It's just not in me to do that. I wish it were because I'd get along with people from my generation and in this time frame because that's what everybody else is doing, but I just can't. Can't excuse it. It was bad. I'm glad that a film with an all-Asian cast was a big hit and got seen by a lot of people and had a theatrical release. That's wonderful. I just wish it had been a better film. I mean, it hasn't received an Oscar nomination or anything, so critically it wasn't anywhere near as well-received as it was commercially. It got Golden Globe nomination. Well, that's the Golden Globes. (laughs) And you know how much attention we should pay to those. We don't do a Golden Globe show. My worst film is also my most over hyped overhyped film i gave one and a half stars one and a half stars to two different movies they were truth or dare uh, which was a terrible bloomhouse film but my worst film my most overhyped film was bird box which is the netflix original or it's released by netflix and um according to netflix about 26 million people watched it in the first week of release and it doesn't get much bigger than that if you were to say 10 bucks a ticket that's 250 million dollars at the box office that week the fact that it doesn't get much bigger than that is a pity because this film was awful it was downright awful uh i think i told you at the time that i found really nothing redemptive about watching it nothing redemptive in that entire experience i thought that it talked too much i thought that it flashed back 
to five years ago and was you know it could have just told the modern day story and that would have been more interesting i thought the most ridiculous sequence was when there was sandra bullock was sitting in a boat and they're trying to make this way to make their way to the green place a school for the blind right right and uh she's needs to go down this river and she's got her child and she's got another child who was born earlier in the movie during a flashback sequence and she agreed to look after this child right anyway at some point they're going to face some rapids and one of them needs to look and the whole idea behind this movie is that nobody can look because then they see this monster or something that is going to make them commit suicide so they're under this quilt and she's looking at these two kids one of whom's hers one of whom's not and she says um somebody has to look so essentially somebody has to die the little boy who's her son says oh look mum and she says no 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 you are not going to look i'll decide who looks and then the little girl who's not her daughter says i'll look and you can see her kind of thinking about this because obviously the obvious choice is to give up the kid who's not yours and then she has these flashback sequences and they're the most generic mind-numbing flashback sequences and then she sobs and she says nobody's going to look and it is so unemotional and stupid and manipulative it is everything bad about filmmaking it is everything lazy about filmmaking and in fact the entire film is it dictates to you what you should be feeling and thinking and what you need to know it doesn't show you anything it tells you it completely the opposite of quiet place which it receives some comparison to which lets you experience I watched uh, maybe 25, 30 minutes of Bird Box and I got its number and I thought, no, I'm doing something else. Yeah, I had to stick with it. Um, so many people had told me that they loved it. I think I got Castle. I got, how long is this dreary thing going on for? And she looked and it was like two hours. <laughs> I thought, I'm not doing that. It's too long. It's about two hours too long. When she gets put in that room with the, all the people hold up like a zombie movie and they're just these stock characters John Malkovich is a joke in it John Malkovich is terrible for me it was unwatchable it was too boring it was too stupid I think John Malkovich somehow got himself trapped in doing this movie and he decided well fuck it I'm gonna do this roll really stupidly I know but he also does make his share of shit this is in keeping because you know I typically do not like Sandra Bullock and this kind of reaffirmed it for me well I love Sandra Bullock but I did not like Bird Box I didn't even see it properly I I didn't couldn't get through it my my runner-ups were Mary Queen of Scots and Green Book didn't like either of those films did you do most over overhyped movie for me it was Ocean's 8 okay um, which I saw and it's fine but it's not good yeah. I wonder if that's kind of some kind of syndrome that's going to be happening where you make a film for a political reason and you say, okay, this film's going to be directed by a woman or it's going to be directed by a black person or it's going to star all women or it's going to star a cast of black people or a cast of Asian people. And therefore it's already at a disadvantage in terms of how good it could possibly be because you've already made a kind of crucial decision before you've even written a story saddest obituary junkie award i'm going to say even though he was 90 it's always sad when an absolute titan of cinema passes away and so i'm going to say nicholas rogue who did don't look now which was uh, the very uh, a very early episode of this podcast but also he did the australian film walkabout and he did performance in the man who fell to earth and one of my childhood favorites the witches based on the roald dahl novel so i i, I would say you know Anytime you lose someone, it's sad, even though he was 90. 
Yeah, that is that is a big loss. For me, it was Margot Kidder. But there were so many. We lost Milos Foreman, Neil Simon, Burt Reynolds, Penny Marshall, Aretha Franklin, Avicii. A lot of, like, great people this year. Yeah. Favourite TV show, Junkie Award, Damien? Neither of us really watch a lot of television, so we're a bit limited here. But there were two shows that stood out to me for different reasons. Uh, first is Shit's Creek. <laughs> which released its fourth season this year and really it just keeps getting better it started off pretty silly in the first two seasons but the last two have really been excellent they found this heart and this love and this happiness and this fun but really finding that heart that a, a show like this that is this degenerate shouldn't have and i loved it i keep trying to get you to watch it but i think you've been turned off by what you have seen and probably my favourite of the year is um, one that made me relive my childhood, which was the YouTube original Cobra Kai, uh, which continued the Karate Kid franchise and it had the majority of the original cast involved. And it's a little bit hokey, but uh, honestly, it was done really well. And I think it was the highest rated TV reboot of a movie that has ever been made. No, it's got some good cred. I've yeah. heard a lot of good things about it. Mm. I didn't ever see Karate Kid as a kid, so I kind of missed that boat. Mm. My favourite TV show this year was... And I actually haven't finished it yet. <laughs> Is it Sharp Objects, Luke? Yes. <laughs> it's so good. I love Amy Adams, and it's such a great opportunity for her to kind of do everything that she does. I don't think you're allowed to answer this question anymore. I think every year your default answer is going to have to be Seinfeld. And uh, final Junkie Award, your best night with a movie for 2018. Uh, I've got to go with seeing The Nightingale at the Adelaide Film Festival. That was um, that was my favourite, seeing it with Jennifer Kent and um, the stars. I did consider The Nightingale, but this one just took the edge. It was April 14th, and I, it was when I watched, for the first time, the Searchers with Mum and Dad. And I will always remember there is a moment at the end of Searchers which is so freaking powerful, but I missed it. And my dad was the one that told me, you realise what just happened there. And I loved watching it with him and I loved watching it with Mum. I love that Dad pointed out that moment to me. It made the moment more special somehow. The Searchers has become an instant favourite. I think it will ultimately make my top 20 films of all time, but I'm going to watch it again this year. You got me a book all about the making of, which looks extraordinary, and I can't wait to read that. So, And I'm sure we will be doing a full episode on it at some point. I would love that. And also it will be a way for me to kind of make you watch it. Well, that's, uh, that's our episode. Our year in film 2018. Thank you all so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next year. <laughs> <laughs>